Hello and welcome to the Sounds Right podcast. In this episode, you'll hear Alison Perry and John Walker discuss all things speech pathology. Alison is a speech pathologist based in Brisbane and she's also the founder of Soundality. Alison discusses the intersection of her years of experience as both speech therapist and Sounds Right trainer. I hope you enjoy the episode. So, hi, Alison. Um, maybe, uh, can you tell us a bit about speech pathology then, please? Thanks, John. I'd love to. Um, speech pathology, yeah, has been a really big part of my life for about 15 years now. I first became interested in speech therapy uh, when I was, uh, I suppose, reflecting on what I wanted to do with my life um, as a late teen um i actually didn't even know what a speech therapist was when i first stumbled across it <laughs> the university guide but when i consider that um you know i really enjoyed teaching piano and clarinet throughout high school and both my uh, parents are now retired primary school teachers perhaps you know it wasn't a, a big surprise that this is where i ended up so I, I just have that passion for teaching and sharing what i know in an easy to understand way um and I've had people say but why didn't you become a teacher and I just thought well perhaps I knew too much I'd spent too many long afternoons and evenings at my mum's school while she prepped and um you know I really understand that teachers don't quite get the holidays that many people assume they do um so yeah when I came across the speech pathology degree um in the university's guide I called a a local speech pathologist who was in private practice um, out in Wilberforce in the Hawkesbury Valley in in Sydney. Um, And she really kindly spent a good 20, 30 minutes with me just sharing her experience. And I really liked what I heard and the rest is history. Right, yeah, Uh, that that, that sounds really interesting. It's funny, you know, because when I was last in Sydney, uh, I got talking to a speech pathologist and I had no idea of how wide the range of, of speech pathology is. Uh, I mean, would you would you like to talk to us a little bit about that and why it was that you went for a particular, you know, a particular field or a niche, if you like? Mm, absolutely. I think the professional title we have here commonly in Australia as a speech pathologist really falls short of coming close to describing the breadth of our training and the range of services we offer. Um, I think many more people are adopting and and other countries generally use the term speech language therapist um, because you get the speech and the language part in there. But, uh, you know, people know about speech pathologists as helping people who stutter or (laughs) who have have a list maybe, but it is much, much more than that. Um, So a speech pathologist is a qualified health professional. Uh, We work with people of all ages, so really from birth to the end of of life. Uh, Generally speaking, like very broadly, speech pathologists help people to communicate um, and they also help people if they're having trouble eating or drinking. Um, So this might look like supporting people when you have trouble understanding or talking with others. Of course, no surprise here, but they help people with reading and spelling and uh, maybe also using technology or other ways to communicate. 
And yeah, as I mentioned, a field that not many people know unless they've come across a speech pathologist, usually in the hospital system, is that we also help people who have trouble swallowing and that can make eating and drinking difficult. So for me, um, I don't think I was cut out to be working in the hospital system. I, it's a bit of a sensory overload with the bright lights and noises and beeping and all the things. Um, as much as I enjoyed it, it, it just wasn't my calling. So working to support families with children um, was where I ended up. Good, great. Um, in our work in Australia, one thing that I've noticed is that there are huge numbers of speech therapists all over the country, uh, whereas in Britain that certainly isn't the case. We might have a speech therapist attached to maybe half a dozen schools or a, a local authority might have a, a, a couple that they employ. But in Australia, it, it's, it, it's absolutely huge, isn't it? There are large numbers of them. And they seem to be especially in demand in schools for uh, catching up children who've fallen behind. Yeah, it's been really interesting hearing the different roles here in Australia versus the UK. Um, and the speech pathologists in Australia um, are not routinely employed within the schooling systems. Uh, it varies quite drastically from state to state. And I think many people in those education systems would agree that uh, it's heavily underfunded, um, but that's a whole other discussion altogether. Um, I think in part the, the reason that speech therapists are in such high demand in Australia for teaching children to read is, yeah, at least in part, an unfortunate reflection of how the education system leaves many students without adequate reading and spelling skills by middle and upper primary. Um, I'm not saying this is a blanket thing and, and there are significant improvements happening. The groundswell is certainly is certainly there now. But I think in the past, what I've heard from a lot of parents who've sought my, my services is that they've been reassured that the child just needs more time or don't worry, you know, they, they'll catch up or just keep it, keep reading to them at home. Um, either that or maybe the intervention that was provided in the school system hadn't been grounded in the science of reading. So, you know, and what we know best about how children learn to read. So they might have been reinforced, lots of guessing and looking at the picture and um, those kinds of strategies, which we know don't serve children well long term. So I think then by the time a child is hitting middle primary and, and beyond, which is where a lot of the referrals um, start to come in, is when parents take their, matter, that, their matters into their own hands um, or perhaps the options for support at school are either limited or absent. So, I mean, that's, that's a whole other issue, but why is it that parents are seeking support from speech pathologists specifically? Um, I think it's because, yeah, we have a really thorough understanding in the language system, uh, a very structured, systematic way of approaching many things that we do in assessment and therapy. Um, and then, of course, there's a significant overlap between the existence of language difficulties or disorders and reading disorders as well. So, yeah, a few big reasons why that um, obviously would take a bit more time to unpack. 
Yeah, 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 good. Uh, so um, how do you manage your two roles? Because, uh, you know, um, I know that Lara uh, was talking about you being a Sounds Right trainer as well. How do you manage to combine the two roles? Uh, how easy is it to combine the two roles, do you think? Yeah, I feel really quite fortunate to be in the position I'm in. Um, having come from a background sort of at the coal front where I am supporting families and working with children who for a range of reasons have had trouble learning to read and write. Um, but being able to draw on my background knowledge as a speech pathologist um, and then overlaying the this sort of specialist knowledge I have there in, in phonics and really how to teach reading and spelling very effectively um, allows me to support those families where children have perhaps more than one area of need, um, which is not uncommon. As I just mentioned, we've, we've got such an overlap between spoken language difficulties and, and written language difficulties. Um, yeah. With a program like Sounds Right, when I'm using it in therapy, because it has that clear structured approach um, and I'm aware of the importance of following that with fidelity, um, that becomes the core of my instruction. But we can also, and I think many speech pathologists are, are doing this really effectively, uh, starting to weave in those oral language or speech sound therapy goals without diluting that fidelity to instruction. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's something that ends up being extremely rewarding and you can have very effective change in improving a student's um yeah not just their their written language but their oral language is a almost side product to that too um and then on top of that of course yeah i have the absolute pleasure of being sounds right trainer so being able to reach uh, a much wider audience to share what i know works so effectively um so the fact that yeah each time i run a training course i can train a a group of people um, now with the online course from all across the world, in fact, to do what I do. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Good. Well, uh, one thing I've been meaning to ask you, I, I was talking to a group of uh, speech therapists uh, in Australia. Do they receive any kind of formal training in how to teach reading and writing, uh, you know, when, when they're training to be um, uh, therapists? It's mm, a good question. Um, I think it's an area that is lacking in training. Um, and one of the main reasons I, you know, pieces of evidence I have for that is the sheer number of speech pathologists who seek, um, you know, professional development in a specific phonics method with, with sounds right training. I was studying about 15 years ago. So at the time that I did that, I did my training uh, there was very, very little regarding teaching, reading and writing. Um, in fact, I remember at the end of a lecture on phonological awareness, I put my hand up and asked the lecturer, because I, I was that student, I still am that student, um, and I asked her, you know, what about teaching reading? Because it was, I felt like, you know, book closed, we're done, subject is finished. I said, hang on, but what about teaching reading? And the response I had at the time was that that was the, the school's responsibility or the, the teacher's responsibility. Um, and that's all there was to it at the time. But I remember feeling unsatisfied, um, even as a you know, second or third year student. So when I 
graduated and started work in um I went for to a non-profit organization and then into private practice but primarily working with school-aged kids time and time again there were kids coming through my door who's really struggled with their reading and spelling and I wasn't well equipped to know what to do um beyond just frantically kind of scrabbling things together and doing the best I could with what I knew at the time um and it was then that I discovered Alison Clark's Spellforbet website <laughs> and Rose Nielsen. Um, so she's the author of um, a few assessment tools and was running some professional workshops at the time. And um, yeah, and then my, when I, I started at the Dyslexia Spelled Foundation, I obviously then met you, John, and did my Sounds Right training, which is where <laughs> there were many aha moments and you know, a bit of confirmation of what I was already doing, but a lot more of, uh, right, that's, that's a much better way to do it. Um, from what I hear, though, things have improved in the 15 years since I trained um, and more recently graduated speech pathologists are telling me that they they covered the reading rope. Um, so Scarborough's reading rope and Goff and Tumner's simple view of reading. So there are some theoretical models there that are that are covered. But beyond that, generally they're saying, well, they, they don't feel well equipped to know how to assess and treat a student with literacy learning difficulties. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's a shame, actually, that uh, because it, it, it seems to uh, it's perfect, isn't it, to bring teachers and, and, and the knowledge of speech pathology together and combine them. And it's a pity, actually, that they're not given more uh training in actually how to teach reading and writing and the steps that you really need to follow yeah there probably isn't time actually given all the other things that you have to cover by the sounds of things but anyway so um one thing i did want to ask you is uh what would your advice be to someone who's now thinking about a career in speech pathology what would you what would you say to them Oh, I'd say do it because I love it. Um, I'm, I, you know, I love my job, and I think that's such an important thing to have. But if your your mind's already set on it, and you've, you know, called up that local speechy and had a bit of a yarn to them, and thought, yep, that that sounds a bit of all right. Um, just to be prepared for lifelong learning, like your your undergraduate degree or your master's degree will equip you with a really good foundation but beyond that there is so much more to learn and things change um there's a lot more discussion at the moment around working with um, autistic people and the therapies and the language around that is is very different to what i was trained in 15 years ago um you know it's not an area i work specifically in now but i certainly know that if i was to get back into working in that area i would really need to, to scrub up my my knowledge and my skills and get with the time so be prepared for that and um seek support you know you're going to learn so much from the people you work with um so i mean you know the professionals you work with but also the families that you work with i think i've learned just as much from the families i've worked with as they've learned from me over the years um and i think yeah really encouraging people to seek support there are so many avenues for uh formal and informal paid and unpaid professional development and, and networking with sort of like-minded speech pathologists. So um, draw on that because I think the burnout, the potential for burnout is real, like many helping professionals. Um, we've got to be careful and kind to ourselves, but it, it can be a really 
rewarding and um, you know a career with such longevity if if you set yourself up for success if, as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. Now that seems to chime very nicely, actually, with um, this conversation I was having with the speech in uh, in Australia not long ago, and and I was saying, well, uh, you know, w- what are you doing now, and uh, where where do you hope your career is going to go next? And she said, well, the next thing I'm looking forward to is to working with really young children. And I was really surprised to hear this. You see, uh, uh, I mean, since since then, I've found out that, of course, that that is an area in which uh, speech pathologists work and after that after two or three years doing that she might actually change again to helping people who've had strokes or helping people Mm -hmm. to learn to speak again so I was really quite amazed by all this and it sounds to be quite an exciting profession if you choose to you know um, enhance your knowledge all the time I suppose yeah yeah and be prepared to be vulnerable and start not start new but um yeah, I think dive deep and be brave and, and um, shake things up a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, when I started teaching, I, of course, it was easy to move. I, I trained as a, a primary and a secondary teacher, so I've always found it really easy to me- move between the two areas. Of course, these days, you can't do that so easily. If you train as a secondary teacher, uh, you can't really move to primary very easily and vice versa as well. But um yeah, I've always found it incredibly rewarding to learn from so many people in the right across the field, you know. Mm. OK, so uh, one question I have for you is I'm sure we all have these moments, but do you have a crowning moment in all the years of experience that you've had uh, working with children, uh, which you could tell us about? <laughs> this question. Um, I... I mean, as I said, I'm fortunate to find my job really rewarding and it, it's hard to choose just one. I've got, I, I have in my em, email inbox a little folder that is thank you notes and I tuck them aside as I remember my mum telling me that she did as well from, you know, thank you notes from parents. So, but I continue to come back to one particular young man I, I worked with more recently, actually. Um, I'll use a pseudonym because his mum might actually end up listening. Um, the So, yeah, it, it's a boy who I met when he was in grade three, um, so as an eight-year-old, and his sort of case notes were that he was he's an autistic boy um, diagnosed with ADHD and a few months before we met had been diagnosed by a clinical neuropsychologist as having an intellectual impairment as well. Um, He had a history of lots of therapies from a young age, um, a a very supportive family environment, so particularly his mother, um, you know, really spent a lot of time understanding how to support him at at home and following up with, um, you know, the the suggested strategies and home practice and all of that. Um, So when we met a few years ago, he he couldn't, he didn't have any functional reading or spelling. Um, At school, he'd been getting some small group support and was slowly starting to develop some letter sound knowledge. Um, He could recognise a few high-frequency words, but beyond that, you know, that's kind of where his skills ended. Um, And so we started Sounds Right from the very beginning and I was really 
found it, I, I mean, not just with this family, but with all my families, I think it's so important to explain why we're doing what we're doing and and giving the family not just the tools but that understanding for for why and how to support their kids at home as well so yeah his this boy's mother was always really active in our sessions um and very involved in in providing home practice from the start um so i think that's that's part of the success story but after a few terms of therapy um and just it was good fun. I always looked forward to our sessions. And after a few terms of therapy, they had a trip um, down to Sydney and were walking around Darling Harbour in the evening. And there was a some sort of light show um, where the there were you know lights projected up onto the buildings around the harbour. And I'm pretty sure it was on the opera house. And this boy walking with his family said, you know, mum, what does lift me well why does it say lift I'm pretty sure this is the word but it was a, a CVCC word um and she went oh you know lift and it was maybe the name of the festival or whatever it was and but she turned to the older brother who hadn't had difficulties learning to read and said Did you tell him what it was no no he'd read it for himself and it was that moment where you know so many other people if they'd recounted that story it wouldn't have meant much but like we were in tears in the lesson while she's telling me because it was the first time he'd read print in his environment because it was the first time he'd been able to all ift left and he did it um and I got in touch with this family again recently because I do think about them from time to time um I've you know, been on maternity leave for the last few years so I've, I've not been uh, working with them personally but he's off to high school next year um and mum reported that he can now read a lot of picture books with fluency and comprehension. Um, she said this morning we're doing some maths homework sent home from school and he could read the maths questions. Um, and this year he could read all of his birthday cards. So I just think from the boy I met four years ago who couldn't read and write um, to a young man who's entering high school with safety skills so you know he can read signs and complete forms and read the you know safety labels and the social side of things communicate with his mates via text like there is just so much to it um so yeah it's probably not surprising that that's that's why he's the one that I come back to it's, uh, goodness, it sounds great uh, I mean what an inspiration great story uh, the thing is that you've opened you've opened the world up to this boy and uh, that should inspire other people to want to do exactly the same thing. Yeah. I think with, you know, all the challenges that he faced and how easy it would have been just to swipe it off and go, well, no, these are the difficulties he has. Um, these are his you know, labels, but you know, he still has absolutely the right to learn to read and spell like any other child without those additional difficulties. And with that, you know, the kind of instruction he received and the intensity of practice, um, it, it made it possible for him. Yeah, no, that, uh, I mean, that's absolutely right. Uh, you just so rarely hear people say it's every child's right to learn to read and write. And it, it's been in the past anyway, so easy really to write these children off and and to say, well, of course, they'll they'll never learn to read and write properly in the way that we do, you know, and things like that. Whereas, in fact, we've shown many, many times, haven't we, 
how we can really be successful in teaching children to read and write. Of course, after that, it depends on them to some extent what they make of it, but uh, we do our bit. Great. Okay, um, thank you so much for talking to me this morning, uh, Alison. It's been great to listen to what you have to say, and it's very interesting listening to your crowning moment and for you to tell us all about uh, speech pathology and how it relates to teaching children to read too. Thank you so much, John. I've really appreciated the opportunity.